we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Northern Power Women podcast for your career and your life, no matter what business you're in. Hello, I'm Sam Walker and welcome to the very first episode of the Northern Power Women podcast. Coming up, you'll hear from MP for Manchester Central, Lucy Powell, on the highs and lows of her journey to achieve her career ambitions. It's very hard to not feel... um, well, some jealousy, I suppose, but also, you know, huge kind of disappointment. It's incredibly sort of crushing. And I, di- I, I didn't really sort of speak for about two weeks. In Ask the Hive, one young woman asks a direct question which gets this response. It makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable and frankly upset. And on our discussion panel today, find out what makes one of our guests say this. This is not really a question for a room full of women. This is a question for a room full of men. But first, let's check in with the founder of Northern Power Women, Simone Roche, for some news from HQ. We've had so much going on with Northern Power Women. I just can't even tell you how exciting it's been. So this is our very first podcast. And I'm absolutely thrilled that we've got this opportunity to get our Northern Power Women and Men voices uh, wider, heard uh, and listened to. Uh, We recorded this event at the first ever celebration event um, at KPMG uh, last week, where we had over 100 uh, women and men from our powerless future list winners coming together and just seeing that connection in that room um, and the you know sort of the collaboration that you can see coming from that is always brilliant and inspiring for me really excited to launch our first ever northern power minute research pilot which we undertook at the end of last year by interviewing a sample of 40 of our northern power women and men to look at what the trajectory of their careers are and look at were those you know those real key defining moments so you know if you want any more information on that, please contact us. I was involved with the Manchester Metropolitan University Generating Roots for Women's Leadership Project, which Northern Power Women are supporting. So they created two key toolkits. Uh, one's around synchronising women's leadership and one is around mentoring and sponsorship, which I know we're talking about on this very first podcast, which is fantastic. And the 6th of July, we have the very first Northern Power Women Live, NPW Live, a TED-style storytelling event. We've got just under 20 speakers coming to share their story but don't worry if you can't make it we'd love to see you there if you can't all of the talks are going to go online so we truly truly get these northern power women voices acting locally but impacting globally if there is any way or any more information you want or want to have any conversations with us about northern power women we would love to hear from you contact with us on twitter at north power women email connect at northernpowerwomen.com or www.northernpowerwomen.com there is lots going on and we would love to have you involved thank you so much for your support thank you so much to simone more updates from simone on the podcast next month but of course as you heard her say you can always stay in touch online at northernpowerwomen.com or on twitter at northpowerwomen
Well, each month on the podcast, you'll get to hear the frank discussion between three women and men on three issues that affect us all. What we really want to do is start a conversation. And when we launched the podcast in Manchester just a couple of weeks ago, we decided to do something that most podcasts do months and months and months after launching. And that is hosting a live episode. So please welcome to the stage three extraordinary women. The first is uh, Marion Sudbury, who's the Director of Global Operations for the Northern Powerhouse uh, Exports and Investment. Marion worked on behalf of major blue chip companies in roles ranging from board director to senior vice president. She ran her own lifestyle business, working with businesses around the globe, and since January 2013 has been working with the Department for International Trade, helping high potential businesses in the Northern Powerhouse learn and grow through overseas business. Please also welcome Lorna, Lorna Fitzsimons, who's CEO and co-founder of The Pipeline. Lorna, it says here you thrive on helping employers and female executives achieve agreed outcomes. She also leads the Alliance Project, a public-private partnership to bring textile manufacturing back to the UK. As previous CEO to the Britain-Israel Communications and Research Centre, Lorna also turned this organisation into an internationally renowned centre of excellence. She's a former Member of Parliament and also President of the National Union of Students. And finally, last but absolutely not least, uh, Joanne Roney, Chief Executive of uh, Manchester City Council. Uh, Joanne was an apprentice at 16 with Birmingham City Council's housing department. She later went on to become Director of Housing for Kirklees Metropolitan Borough Council in West Yorkshire. She then worked for 10 years as Sheffield City Council's Executive Director of Housing and Community Care. Whilst working her way through the ranks, she studied, you know, she didn't have much on, so she studied part-time at Birmingham University and gained an MBA in public sector management and uh, Joanne became chief exec for Wakefield Metropolitan District Council in July 2008 and took her position as chief exec for Manchester City Council in April 2017. Welcome all of you. Thank you very much. So the three things we wanted to talk about, we'll talk about every month on the Northern Power Women podcast. And the first one actually refers back to some of the research that was done recently uh, by Marie Burns for, the, for Northern Power Women. And that's the notion of mentorship versus sponsorship. Now, the question is, is the focus on mentorship as opposed to sponsorship shortchanging women? Now, I know that you have a, a very strong opinion on this one, Laura. The answer is yes, is that nobody ever got to the sponsor at the top with a mentor, but they get to the top with a sponsor. So how many of you have got sponsors? Hands up. Yeah. Right, you will have sponsors. There's two in the room. Um, uh, and you will have sponsors. Sponsorship is, pass is active. Mentorship is passive. Harvard University did a study and proved emphatically that women are over-mentored and under-sponsored, okay? So find out who your sponsors are and if you don't have them, then think about it and find them. Because there will be people that are in your current organisation, there will be people that are actually in your life because you know them randomly or from previous careers, and they will have taken... Um, a interest in you and your career. They will have suggested you apply for jobs. They will have suggested you go to conferences. They will have promoted you. 
Um, and as such, you will therefore have got opportunities you would not otherwise have got. I have never got an opportunity in my life without it having been through one of my sponsors. Um, and so, as the research said, the women that were talking about mentors really meant sponsors. So when, when you describe the difference, so a mentor is somebody who's done the job before you, like a fellow chief executive saying, well, when that happened to me, I did this. That's passive, that's neutral, okay? A sponsor is somebody, come on, Joanne, you're going for that job. That job's got your name on it. Don't care whether you've only got 10 out of the 10 qualifications, because you're a girl, you're not gonna apply for it. You're applying for it, you know? And furthermore, we're gonna do subtle sessions, and actually, I'll introduce you to X, Y, and Z to make sure you feel comfortable applying for it. That's the difference between a sponsor and a mentor. Joanne, is, is um, sponsorship been part of your career? I uh, couldn't agree more, actually. Um, I, I would just add to what Lorna said by saying that mentoring at some level can be of assistance because, of course, sharing experience and particularly encouragement if you're thinking about should I make a next move or maybe I'm not too clear, mentoring adds value at that level. I completely agree with you, though. Uh, if you're serious about a career and you want to get to the top, the truth is you need somebody who's going to push you to go to places that you wouldn't go. I wouldn't have got my master's without somebody saying to me, Joanne, you really need to go on and do a master's. I probably wouldn't be the chief executive of Manchester had somebody not said, you're good enough to do this, you really should apply for this job, why wouldn't you? So they are sponsors, they are people who say, go there and push you. Mentors, I think, add value in an advisory capacity, but it is distinct and different, and, and not enough women demand sponsorship as opposed to mentoring. Marion, has sponsorship played a part in your career? Yeah, that's quite an interesting question. I was curious when I saw this question because I don't think I've had a formal sponsor who I've thought of in those terms. Although actually, I did recognise some of the language from the study earlier when um, it was people saying, go on, you could do it. And when I was much younger, I would always say to my husband, oh, I can't go for that job, I'll never get it. And he'd be like, don't be stupid. You'd be doing them a huge favour. Otherwise, they'll hire some numpty and they'd be much better off hiring you. <laughs> so he was a fabulous sponsor. But I was thinking about the fact that actually this is not really a question for a room full of women. This is a question for a room full of men because most of the sponsors will be men. And I wonder whether we could get every man that we work with to think about the people that, without probably putting a label on it, they are sponsoring now and how many of those are men and how many are women. Because if you're not careful with your language, they say, oh, it's all about um, positive discrimination and that's somehow seen as a bad thing. But I think if you got them to actually think how many of the people I kind of think I'm helping along are blokes and how many are women and to even it out, somehow that would be a big help. So where can you find a sponsor? If you're in the, in the audience now listening to this conversation and going, that is what I need. Is it always within your organisation? Is it within your sector? You will find people that you feel affinity with and then somebody will point out when you ask the question, who do you think my sponsors are? They'll say, don't be stupid. So one of the women on our top flight programme is um, uh, at a listed company in Manchester. And um, she thought that the two people she thought she had problems with on her board were actually her two major sponsors. Um, and it was just asking the question, if you ask other people, so who do you think my sponsors are, 
they will sometimes shine a light on things that you're unaware of. But most organisations should also do an active sponsoring programme. So many of the major corporates now, um, there was a financial service, one of the biggest banks in the world, um, started to address it. They looked at their risk function. Their global risk function had 65 global vice presidents. 65. It was hilarious. Um, and when the chief executive of the, the, the or the head of the risk function asked for a succession plan, there wasn't one woman on the list out of 65. And the answer that they thought was, oh, well, we'll do mentoring. And we turned around and said, no, you won't. You'll do sponsorship. Because the only way any of the boardroom got put through, pulled through. So some of it you can do for yourself, and it can be anywhere. It's people that you trust, that you rate, that are out of reach to you in terms of your career. It's not somebody who is one step or two steps above you. It's somebody who's been there, done it, got the T-shirt that you revere. Um, and and then they, they can come anyway, you know, and it's surprising, you will be surprised who it is. And if you have a conversation, all of you will have a sponsor. You just won't be aware of whom. So it's going to be a delightful journey for you to discover who your sponsors are and then cherish them. But then ask yourself the question, who are you playing it forward to? Who are you sponsoring? Okay, fantastic stuff. Lots of food for thought there. Let's move on then to the second topic we're going to discuss tonight. This one, I'm waiting for the gasp. So get ready for it. Should northern cities accept and embrace their roles as satellite towns to the global city of London? <laughs> oh, there was booze, not a gas. No, it's interesting, actually, because this topic comes out of a comment made by a senior executive who shall remain nameless about whether we in the north need to redefine our roles and stop competing and shouting for equal standing with London, but realise that support roles are very, very important, perhaps equally as important. You are laughing, Marion Sudbury. I'm guessing you've got quite a lot to say about this. Over to you. So, okay. Interesting question. Um, I think, obviously, I'm a huge supporter of the Northern Powerhouse. And I think one of the things that it's really important to, to do in any role in order to grow and in any position in order to grow is to stop looking at someone else and thinking, I wish I was more like you. And I think that if you do that, it weakens you. And so I think London is a global megacity. I think that's fantastic. And London, by the way, if, in my field, trade and investment is a hugely supportive of the Northern Powerhouse. And um, I always say to all of the Northern cities, don't look over your shoulder and think, oh, do I want to be more like London? Just think about how fabulous you are and tell people how fabulous you are. And that's the way to be strong. So I, I think it's a zero sum game to keep wishing or feeling bad about the fact that, um, that they're somehow better at something than you. I, I think we've all got our own identity. And I think that includes London. It includes Manchester, Sheffield, Leeds, Newcastle, all the places in between. But I think it's just important that we look at what we're great at and don't keep looking over our shoulder. Chief Executive of Manchester City Council, your thoughts are going to be very interesting as well. Well, they're not going to differ at all from Marion's, really, but obviously I'm going to say, why on earth would Manchester want to compare itself to London in any way, shape or form, really? Um, actually, this is really important for the UK as a whole, I think, and um, I completely agree that we shouldn't be comparing ourselves with each other to a zero-sum game. 
what we should do is absolutely aspire to be the best we can for the people who live in our cities. And if we put all of our northern cities together, what we're talking about 15 million people, aren't we? And a million private sector industries, all of whom want to grow. I think we've just got a huge agenda to do better for our cities in their own right. Now, if that ends up rebalancing the UK, and uh, improves UK global output, fantastic. But my start point is doing the right thing for the people who live in this city, doing the right thing to attract new investment into this city, and uh, making this uh, a fantastic place to live and work in. And I think that's probably true of every, any chief executive of any of the northern cities. I don't think we do compare ourselves to London in a, or define ourselves in any way as a subsidiary of London. And um, I'm quite amused that the question came from London, actually. It's interesting that one comment that did come up in some research we did amongst some Northern Power women, one senior executive was bemoaning the lack of senior roles outside of London. She said, there's a certain point you get to and you can't get any further unless you move to London because there hasn't been the spreading out of roles of a, a certain level outside. Lorna. We have many women on our programmes that lead huge corporations from outside London. We've got some listed companies, quite a lot of listed companies in the north, and it's increasing. I think you determine your, you you define your own terms. Um, I couldn't agree more with both Marion and Joanne. Um, is that you lose uh, when you act as though you're a supplicant. And I think the parallels in terms of women's careers are the same as the north. Is the time that you were abiding by the rules. In other words, you go through the chain of command, you've lost, okay? Um, you never ask for permission, you ask for forgiveness. We created the Industrial Revolution, we were the mercantile centre of Northern Europe and uh, at certain parts and in certain bits of the industry of the globe. We do not need to ask for permission. What we need to do is remind ourselves, and this yet again is a metaphor for women, we need to remind ourselves that we are brilliant, that we have global icons of leadership in every single sphere that you need to be a global economy and it's about time the north stopped asking permission and being a victim we are a powerhouse we have been therefore we can be and it's the same for women so if you take microsoft microsoft don't think that people are good at three things everybody's good at three things they don't care what you're rubbish at they really don't care what you're rubbish at. They will twin you with somebody else who's good at the things that you're rubbish at and make a stunning team. And so one of the things that we need to harness in the North is this belief of an absolutely unrelenting ambition and for excellence and for leadership. And we need to empower all the people in the North. And given that 52% of them are women, this is a good place to start. Marion, I saw you nodding profusely and, and uh, keen to talk. Well, I think um, I understand what people are saying about, of course, if you look at the classified ads or whatever, there are more ads in London than there are in the North. But my team have been looking into some of the stats to do with the North. And for example, if you compare uh, the Northern Powerhouse to Frankfurt, which you think of as quite a major financial centre, there are 11 times more jobs in finance in the Northern Powerhouse than there are in Frankfurt 
got eight companies in the north of England that are valued at a billion pounds or more tech companies. Um, so, you know, there are actually quite a lot of really major um, companies across the north. I think sometimes it does require a bit more flexibility, and I think that takes us back to sponsorship. I think what you were saying about cross-sectoral sponsorship actually becomes even more important, because it might be that you can't just mosey your way up one particular sectoral line like you might be able to in London, but that doesn't mean that by moving a little bit sideways you can't get to the same place you were looking to get to. Fantastic stuff. Well, lots more food for thought there. Final topic for discussion this evening. And again, I'm expecting a bit of a groan. So the question is, why are we still struggling with the conversation around a work-life balance? And actually, are you kind of sick of having it? Who's going to start? I struggle with this question because, firstly, I don't know what having it all means. I instantly feel guilty because I don't think I've got it all, but then I don't know what having it all would look like. I'm also, I am a little tired of the repeat issue that women seem to raise about this dilemma uh, around work-life balance. I, I actually think the world is changing. I think we care as much about society as we do productivity. Look at where the country is at the moment. And this might be personal for me for the four weeks I've just spent in this new job. I think people want people to create safe, stable families that want to create good relationships in communities and neighbourhoods as much as they want to see GDP increase or productivity. So I think it, we actually owe it to ourselves to get for ourselves in our own context that like work-life balance that we want to aspire to. Do I think employers could be more flexible and better around employment practices? Yes, I do. But we absolutely should just start demanding it. And the, the point I'd end with on this is that young people are going to want a very different work pattern and family life pattern than perhaps the ones I've grown up with. So I think it is now becoming... A, it's almost writ large in any organisation I've ever worked with that the best way to get productivity up, the best way to engage staff, the best way to become the most successful organisation you have is to allow people to have the flexibility that they need to operate and work in the way they want to work. And, and frankly, we should stop making this an issue that women talk about. We should start making this an issue that any employee demands in any organisation in order to do their job better. I mean, it's interesting, you, you talked of people and then said this is, has to be, we have to stop having this conversation around women and women alone. The fact is women still do adjust their careers more than men when they have children. But there's been some really interesting research out just this week um, by the Workopolis for the Paternity Enhancement Group. 71% of working fathers feel guilty when work commitments take precedence over their home life. If they have a choice, 56% of the men they spoke to said they'd accept a 10% wage cut to spend 10% more time at home. Half of working fathers would be willing to change jobs if an employer offered them better work-life balance. This is shortchanging men and fathers, isn't it? The fact this conversation remains to be around women. 
Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. And I think it's actually a bigger issue because if you look at the predictions about automation in the future and the numbers of jobs that there'll be 30, 40, 50 years hence, I think all of us are going to have to rethink our relationship to work and how far we get our identity from work. Because at the moment when you meet someone and you say, what do you do? The first thing people talk about is work. And I think that's kind of, yeah, it's a really important part of our psyche. But actually, we're going to have to rethink that. And I don't think as a society, we've even started to grasp that, grapple with that, think about what it's going to mean for us. Um, the Commission on Work that uh, the Prime Minister asked Matthew Taylor, who's the Chief Executive of the RSA, is really going to grapple with that because what goes up must come down. But we always think that if we go up the, uh, the ladder in terms of being more affluent and, and more senior, that you can't come down. Uh, well, you can. And so we are going to be talking about the quality of the work we have rather than the quantity of work we have. Have any of you, as a, a final closing thought, ever felt you've had to make a choice between a, a fulfilling family life and a fulfilling work life? Is, is that a myth? I've been, I've been very, very lucky, but I've always, I've, I've got a very supportive husband who's a house husband, now he was a soldier. Um, it was a big transition for him, getting him in a, pink, in a pink shirt first and eventually him doing the washing and the cleaning and the cooking. But I have never had to make a choice because I've always made it work. And I've gone into the presumption of negotiations that what you want, what the employer wants, what the person employing me for a contract wants is the outcome. And as long as they have absolute confidence that I'm going to deliver and over-deliver and add value, then how I do it is up to me. Marion, I understand you, you did make a choice to cut back on, on hours, but had quite a surprising discovery at the end of year one. <laughs> Can you explain? Yes. Um, so at one stage, when my kids were, I don't know, about eight and 11, I decided that I would need to drop to four days a week. And I said to my employer, I'm going to have to drop to four days. And originally they said, well, you can't. And I said, well, I'm going to have to leave then. And then they said, oh, OK, you can. So do push it if, you're, if you want to do that. But I was um, telling Sam earlier that at the end of a, a year of working four days a week and obviously being paid 80%, I looked through the timesheets for the business I was working for at that time and realized I had worked more hours than one of my male colleagues um, who was paid for five days. But actually, weird though it sounds, I didn't mind because I was the person who was able to pick my kids up from the school gate on a Wednesday and they were like, Mom, it's great to see you, whereas everyone else's kids were like, Mom again. But because I was only there one day a week, they thought it was fabulous and I really got a lot out of that time and I was able to frame their photographs and sort their school uniform out and all the things I was rubbish at before that. So... <laughs> No, I don't feel I've ever had to make a choice, although I would quite like a dog, which has proved impossible because of the hours I work. Um, I haven't had to make the choice consciously, but then I'm conscious that, you know, I haven't, I haven't had children, but um, that was never a conscious decision as such. But you so. still have a life, Joanne. <laughs> exactly. My point was, my point was, I, I've always insisted on having my own life and doing the things that I want to do. And I think wherever you get to in your career, if you lose sense of who you are as a person, then actually you're not going to be a very good leader when you get there. So whether you call it work-life balance, whether you call it um, your supportive relationships or even your children, to me it doesn't matter so long as you never lose sight of who you are as an individual and get a wider rounded perspective all the time.
what a fabulous phrase to end on. Thank you so much to all the panellists of our inaugural discussion for the Northern Power Women podcast. Marion Sudbury, Lorna Fitzsimmons and Joanne Roney. Thank you so very much. Thanks again to all of our brilliant panellists. There will be more next month, of course. If you've got a topic you'd like discussed or maybe you'd like to take part in a future panel, we'd really love to hear from you. Just email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Now it's time to delve into the mind of an individual who's at the very top of their game and find out what really makes them tick. What makes a successful person? How do they deal with challenges and failures in their careers? What do they think needs to change to get more women in their sector? Today, we hear from the MP for Manchester Central, Lucy Powell. And I started by asking her whether, at the very start of her career, she had a hard and fast plan for success. No, not really. I think in, in politics, that's quite hard to do because it's not, it's not a career you necessarily start off with. It's usually, to become a, an actual politician, an actual MP or that kind of thing, it's usually something you do later as like a second career but I was always very political um I joined the Labour Party when I was 15 I was very active in sort of politics through my life and I did work in politics a bit um in my early, in my sort of early 20s as well which gave me a bit of an insight so yeah it was a, it was an organic mm. kind of process that got me there in the end so when did the realization come wait a minute I could become an MP that could be me well it first became something that I really properly thought about um, in 2005. So that was a good while before I actually became an MP um, because in 2005, the seat that I'd grown up in and the seat that I'd joined, first joined the Labour Party and was very active and where my sort of family all lived and everything, Manchester Withington, um, that on, in the 2005 general election, that seat was lost to the Labour Party. So I knew that at some point in the next few years, there would be, um, they would be looking for a new Labour candidate to go for that to go for that seat so that's where that thought process began and then the selection process actually began in the 2000 and 2007 which I was then successful at uh, and then I stood in the 2010 election for Manchester Withington but I lost so then it, it, well, I didn't actually become an MP until 2012. What did losing feel like? Oh it was, it was awful yeah it was pretty um, pretty grim really because I think when you, you know, I'd been a candidate for three and a bit years by the time the election came and there's huge sacrifices you have to make to sort of be a candidate, especially in a marginal seat, a seat that's very close. You're up against somebody who's got staffing resources, got loads of help and support and people expect you to offer the same service and to be present at as many events and all that kind of stuff to sort of compete against them. So I, I worked part time uh, through that time. And I actually had a, got married and had a child through that time as well. So I think in order to give it what it needs to be given um, whilst juggling everything else, you've got to think that you're going to win. So then when you lose, it's incredibly sort of crushing. And I, I, I didn't really sort of speak for about two weeks. My husband sort of tried to take me away and we had a little baby. And um, but I just didn't really sort of speak to anybody. But... It's a bit like grieving, really, I suppose, in a way. Um, so by the time I came up for air, it sort of felt less raw. So it was finding a new focus and concentrating your energies into into that, into positivity, as opposed to letting that those negative feelings overwhelm you. Absolutely, because I was watching, um, you know, straight after that election into into 2010. Obviously, on the television, there was 
well, it was the forming of the coalition, but there was lots of my friends who had, had got elected um, or people that I knew or lots of contemporaries, obviously, that I'd met as candidates. And so, you know, there was a whole kind of watching them be swearing in and ignoring it, being kind of photos with the leader and all that sort of stuff. And it's very hard to not feel... Um, well, some jealousy, I suppose, but also, you know, huge kind of disappointment. So, yeah, so I I was then sort of kicking around thinking, well, I'll have a nice summer, I'll have some maternity leave that I didn't really have because I'd had a baby sort of five months before. Um, and then after a couple of weeks, totally out of the blue, Ed Miliband phoned me um, and uh, obviously he was un- unknown at that point, largely, and asked me if I would run his leadership campaign that he was just decided to ru- go um, up against his brother to be leader of the Labour Party. And I think at that point he was like 33 to 1 or something to be the next leader of the Labour Party. So I thought, OK, well, why not? I'll do three or four days a week doing that just to give me something to do. Um, and then he ended up winning. And then, you know, so it was all a bit mad. So... As one door closed, another really did open, which was, was quite unexpected. Who who helped you along the way? Who was it who were, was instrumental in your success? Well, I don't know that there's one person um, that was probably instrumental to my success. I mean, obviously, my, my dad and my mum. Um, you know, my dad was very political. He sort of would, would push me a lot of the time. Um, I mean, my husband more obviously more recently um, because I couldn't really kind of do it without him um, at all. I think, you know, having a husband who uh, actually relishes my success is quite a... Is, is, is you know he's not he's not jealous of it at all um or resentful of it at all um is quite a, an important sort of thing especially when you've got children and everything else um and then along the way all sorts of pe- other other political people you know who've supported me at sort of various points from Ed Miliband through to you know Glennis Kinnock and uh you know Harriet Harman at all different points mm. i think have kind of given me a shove in the right direction when i've needed it most how crucial is a support network within your personal life and your and your career for your success? It's absolutely critical. I just couldn't do it at all. Um, I mean, you know, and it's tough. I mean, I, one thing I always say is to to be an MP, you really do need a wife. <laughs> um, and my husband's an A and E doctor, and I think to be an A and E doctor, you really do need a wife. Um, and neither of us have got a wife, basically. So we have to sort of find other ways to substitute that sort of role. So, yeah, this, the, my mum my and my dad uh, help a, a huge amount. Um, and we, we have an au pair, you know, sort of living kind of student a lot of the time, which is great. Um, and all sorts of people, aunties, you know, brothers, sisters, everyone gets roped in at some point. But I've got three kids you know, it's quite a lot to sort of juggle. So I couldn't do that without without them. Did you ever feel scared of success? Yeah, yes. I mean, success is a hard thing to equate because I think success probably always gets a bit further away from wherever you... It's kind of walking to the top of a mountain or something, is that you, you, you think you're just getting to the top of it and then you realise there's a whole other sort of section of the mountain sort of to climb. Um, so maybe I'm hard on myself because, like, what is success? I suppose I was thinking about this recently. I was thinking, well, I could just sort of settle and, you know, be a bit more... Um, 
less driven and less ambitious about what I'm doing because I am an MP you know I'm a, a kind of it's very successful kind of uh privileged you know hugely important job but I, I am one of those people that's always kind of looking for the next thing not for myself particularly but like what what other impact can I make what what else can I do with the with the platform and the and the you know the privilege that I've got there must be times when that drives you and other times when it just exhausts you yeah I think there are times that it does just exhaust you um especially in the world that we live in now I mean the sort of job I've got you know being a being an MP being in the public eye being a politician you're never off you, you really are never off. And I think a lot of people, you know, the higher up the sort of career ladder you go would probably relate to that. Um, you know, even like little things like shouting at your kids in the supermarket, you know, somebody could be YouTubing it, you know what I mean? So you kind of... But even when I'm out and about in Manchester or shopping, you know, people will, will, will recognise me, want to have a chat, will come up to me, as well as there are always issues in train um so obviously you know whether it's something terrible like it's happened in manchester recently and all the aftermath that comes with that or ongoing um issues of concern that people are raising with you weekends you're nearly always doing something at weekends whether it's a community event or appearing on tv or something you kind of it's, it's hard to switch off I don't know if I ever do actually switch off, but I try sometimes to say I'm going to switch off. What challenges in your career have surprised you? I think that's a really hard question. Um, I've been thinking about that for like two days and I'm not quite sure I've got an answer, but the support that you get in, in, in Parliament, I think I thought that... Um, I thought it would be a more hostile environment. You know, what you see on the television, the kind of reputation, oh, it's really tough for women and, you know, it's quite a sort of masculine kind of yarbu sort of situation. Actually, I've been surprised by how how it's not like that. Um, you get a lot of support from colleagues from all sides of the house, from other political parties as well. And I've never actually really come up against much sexism, to be honest, in Parliament, which I thought I, which I thought I would. So any surprises that I've I've had as an MP, I would say, are are nice ones rather than not nice ones. Did you ever feel stuck when you were m- mapping out this career path? There was a point when you thought, I I don't know which way to turn next. Yeah, loads of times. Um, I think because, you know, politics isn't really something you can particularly plan for. You are at the whim of the electorate. So that's that's a big hurdle. Um, and you've got to kind of be re-elected. It's a fairly brutal uh, business in that sense. You know, look at Nick Clegg or something in this recent election or, you know, in any any election, people could be at the top and then suddenly it's gone because they they get voted out. You're also at the whim of the selectorate, so the your local Labour Party and the Labour Party sort of machinery. And that's quite difficult at the moment because that's been a very confrontational environment over the last two or three years while we've had lots of sort of uh, internal battles about um, the Labour leadership and things. So that's been a... That's been a difficult um, sort of time. So there's, there's there's often sort of new challenges. So there are times when you feel like, is this is this worth it, or will I make it? Mm. Um, uh, all the way through, I think. So what do you do when you have those feelings of, uh, is this worth it? Will I make it? What resources do you draw upon to get through those times? I think you have to. I, I think I 
you know often then you get reassurance from family and friends or um or from colleagues i think it's you know it's important to have a couple of colleagues and people who who you who you know who 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 you can open up to about those things because you wouldn't necessarily talk to other people about them or they wouldn't understand them um so even even with family it's sometimes hard to talk about so i've got some really good girlfriends in parliament i've got some good really good male friends in parliament as well who when usually if one of us is it's usually a sort of a context as to why we're feeling low rather than necessarily a personal thing but we we help each other i mean i do a lot of um now helping colleagues who have having children or got small children because i've sort of come through the other end of that um and i've got uh, colleagues and friends in parliament in particular who you know if i was feeling like oh god you know there's there's, there's loads to do or it's really difficult at the moment or how's it going to go or you know political worries as well about the election that we would kind of share that and we usually we usually sort of push each other along a bit because it's hard to admit vulnerability because it's sometimes equated with in our own heads as a weakness but your advice and what it seems is that if you're feeling vulnerable talk and share that's the way to get past that hurdle Definitely, um, because I think it, you know, it can be it can be overwhelming, and it's usually sort of fairly short-lived anyway. Um, so I think you know, and it's just just trying to take time to kind of refocus, and sometimes actually having I think having a family, having small children as well, can help you do that because there are times when you've just got to you know get on with the washing up and sorting out the pee kits and everything else, and that can be a sort of reflective time as well. You're not. It's not career, 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 you know, job, 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 job the whole time because, you, you know, or, you know, messing around on the trampoline or something like those things can be can be good as well to give you a perspective. So, yeah, my, my advice is always to people to think about what impact can you make? What are the ways in which you can make an impact rather than um, what are the processes that might lead to that impact to like trying to stay focused on it? How do you prioritise your time so that work doesn't always win the battle for your attention? Well, you you have got to develop um, the ability to say no, and and make sure you've got people who work for you and around you that that do that. So, for example, you know the the person in my office who does my diary, you know I say to him, your job is not to fill my time. Your, your job is actually to protect my time. Um, it's a completely different sort of mindset to have. You know, I think when people do diaries, they think, well, fill, fill, fill. Oh, there's a slot there. Let's squeeze something in. And I would say, your job is actually to protect my diary. I think the other thing is about trying to be strategic. Like, what are the things that I'm good at? What are the things that I want to make an impact with? Mm. And if, 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 I mean, it doesn't always work like this, but it's a fairly good rule of thumb that if the if the meeting or the event or the thing you're being asked to do doesn't fit with your own sort of strategy about how you're trying to make an impact with your job, then don't do it. I think you've got to be fairly brutal. Tell me about a big mistake that you've made. God, I made loads of mistakes, to be honest. Um, I've made sort of what felt like big mistakes at the time. So one of the jobs that I've had as a politician was I was... Uh, one of the two people that Ed, Ed Miliband asked to run the general election in 2015. Um, so there was the famous sort of Ed Stone. Now, I didn't really, wasn't really my idea that, but um, 
you know I had to sort of take some of the rap for that um, because uh, you know I was part of the, the kind of team um, and around that time I did a radio interview about about some other things and I'd got through the hard bits of the radio interview um, about whether we were going to go into coalition with the SNP and all the sort of themes of that election and then at the end I was asked a bit about the headstone and I sort of muddled up my words a bit but if you'd heard the interview you'd have understood what I was saying but anyway the muddled up words then became like a huge story and it was on the six o'clock and ten o'clock news and it was just a few days before the general election and um I just thought oh my god like I, I, I was I, I cried I was just so upset it was just so all all consuming at the time it felt like you know I was gonna I had completely sort of thrown away the whole general election with this one interview which of course I hadn't so but it was it was a very stressful and it was it was, a, it was a mistake I'd made which was a a difficult one to get over how do you get over it when you make a mistake like that there's something that lingers and sometimes when you make a mistake you're going about your day and bang it pops in your head and it's physically painful yeah it is physically painful someone made a joke about it recently and I was still like, quite upset about it um but I guess as with lots of things you've just got to sort of get back on the horse so whatever it is that you've made the mistake doing so in that case it was a a media interview um you, you have to just put it down to experience and then not and then get on doing some other media interviews so that you don't get and it, and it you know time is a great healer and it, and it feels if you know it it feels like a massive thing to you but actually to everybody else it's usually not a big thing Lucy what one thing could we change to get more women in your field um I think we still need to have more uh, some positive discrimination I think and we've still we've made huge huge strides getting more women MPs. Uh, we've got the highest number ever, I think, at the moment. But it's still only two hundred out of six hundred and fifty, so we're some way short. But in the Labour Party, that percentage is much much higher. I think it's forty five percent now, so we're nearly equal in the Labour Party. And that's because over the last twenty years, we've used the device of all women shortlists, which are controversial and people don't like it. But I think if you it's been proven to be the only effective method to get more women because I think what it says to aspiring uh, sort of politicians is actually this is a specific opportunity for you as a woman so therefore don't hold back and I think it, it, it makes it brings more women through and we've got to do that so I think you know I'd prefer it not to be the case but I think positive discrimination and I think it's where we'll need to go with the boardroom and, and, and other aspects as well just to till we get more parity and finally Lucy looking back on the last decade or two of your life and your career what are you most proud of I'm probably most proud of sort of managing to do it to be honest um you know to to getting where I've got to, um, to being a, a sort of, you know, a, I think I'm a good MP um, and I think I'm a good, I'm a good mum and that is quite a hard thing to sort of juggle all of those, those things at once. So um, it's always a shame that the kind of kids point in your life comes at the same point as where your sort of career is at its most formative. Um, but, you know, I'll look forward to retirement at some point and <laughs> enjoy grandkids or something else. But I think, yeah, managing, just managing to actually make it. <laughs> There's the MP for Manchester Central, Lucy Powell, talking about success, failure and everything in between. 
So we're nearing the end of episode one of the Northern Power Women podcast. But before we do, it is time for Ask the Hive. This is a chance for you to ask a question on something you're interested in or confused by, or maybe you're stuck in your career. You ask, and then through the power of the brilliant minds connected with Northern Power Women, you get some answers. In a moment, you'll hear next month's question from Kate. But first, this month, Annie got in touch and you responded. Many high-profile networks have little ethnic diversity. Why do you think this is? And what can we do to disrupt the trend? It makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable and, frankly, upset when I look around uh, the rooms that I spend a lot of time in and realise that there are no people of colour. I think that, you know, the reasons for that are, you know, around the fact that we do still live in a structurally racist society, a structurally racist world, and people of colour are not able to access the same opportunities as, as, as white people. I think what we can do about that... Um, you know, in the UK, we often call it positive discrimination when we try and, um, you know, give people a leg up who, who might not have had one before. But I think, um, you know, calling it affirmative action like they do in the US is, is, is um, you know, a, a kind of positive step. Um, having people from diverse backgrounds sitting around the table means that you um, build better companies, you solve different problems, you enter more markets, you, you actually build more sustainable businesses. And um, I just think that it's fantastic that somebody's asked this question and and I would love to uh, work on this issue. Well, I've not really got the definitive answer, but I know that I've been networking since 1989. And the thing I notice is that I do stand side by side with women when we actually attend networking events. Uh, men can be a bit derogatory. Uh, sometimes they cold shoulder and, and close ranks. But let's say I go to a networking event and it's mainly women the cold shoulder comes in it's quite blatant to see it's quite awful to see actually but it's something that I'd brazen out I'd actually um, stand tall and move in and try and network and make sure that people know who I am people can be quite warm towards you after they find out who you are but prejudices do come in and then sometimes you tell them what you've done and they don't believe you why would I make the effort to get there to be cold-shouldered looked down on and then make something up so that's why there's a lack of diversity because you're not made welcome consciously or unconsciously I'm not all for segregation of um, these particular events I do like the fact that there are women's events, but what I mean is Asian, Asian events, African-Caribbean events. Uh, I don't think that should be the norm. The norm should be everybody networking together. It has to reflect society. Must do better people is basically my message. Forge ahead and move forward to try and make it a lot better. Most high-profile networks lack diversity because of when they were formed. Diversity was not a factor then. What we need to see happen is new networks created that reflect contemporary society and these can disrupt and displace the existing networks. 
My experience and my um, thoughts around this area are there is a combination of conscious and unconscious bias, affinity bias, which means you attract like with like and surround yourselves with people who look like you, sound like you, and remind you of you. There's a sense of privilege and comfort, likability and trust factors that influence membership and accessibility to high-profile networks. Some of these networks are self-serving and self-perpetuating, which feeds the perception of inclusion. How can we disrupt this trend, take the plunge, nearly colours to the mast, call it out so to ensure you're being authentic. Don't be cosmetic or lip service around this. What's your aspirations and intent? Be transparent about access and bias-proof your criteria. And finally, understand the other by creating dialogue, understanding via reciprocal mentoring. It depends where you are geographically as to how ethnically diverse a high-profile network may be. For example, I live in Leeds and we're a very accepting and inclusive society. It would be beneficial to work within different communities to discover whether there is inherent ambition or cultural boundaries restraining people to perhaps go for high-profile positions or whether people simply feel discriminated against. I think the reason why many high-profile networks have little ethnic diversity is because normally these networks are created through who you know rather than what you know and therefore gaining access to some of these groups as an ethnic minority can be difficult and also uncomfortable um, where you're joining a group that doesn't have any representation of, of people like yourself. So I think one of the main ways to disrupt this would be about making sure that the access is, is more open and transparent and also some of these groups um, you know, out of the seeking ethnic minority representation. Thank you so much to everyone who responded. And Annie, I really, really hope those collective words of wisdom helped you. Next month, the question for your consideration comes from Kate. My question is around choice in business and focus. So I left my full-time job a bit over a year ago now. And when I left, I left to pursue my dreams and pursue my passions. And I did all those training courses that talked about passions and choice and what you were going to do. And so I decided to actually start two businesses. One was my art and one was presenter coaching, both of which bring me equal amounts of joy. And both of which, if I focused on one of them loads, would probably bring me a similar amount of money, although one's got a slightly bigger hill to climb, I think than the other so my question to you is everything says you should choose one and focus on one and do one and that you don't have to do a business with everything but I really love both and I really want to do both and I don't know how to choose so do I have to choose how do I choose how do I choose so help me please and I'd love to hear your replies thanks ever so much so that was Kate with her question for next month's ask the hive can you help what experiences or knowledge can you share? You can record your answer using the voice memo on your smartphone and email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. That's podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or open up WhatsApp on your phone. The Northern Power Women podcast is on WhatsApp. Our number is 07928 387 712. That's 07928 387712. There is our number. All you need to do is open up WhatsApp, start a new chat. You'll see a little microphone icon right next to the message box. Hold that down, say what you want to say, take your finger off, 
and it will ping straight to us here at the Northern Power Women podcast. All the details you need to be part of the conversation you can find online at northernpowerwomen.com. Thank you so much for all the feedback you've sent us since we launched the podcast a couple of weeks ago. We'd love you to tell everyone you know, share the podcast with as many friends and colleagues as you can, and of course, subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Sam Walker, and this has been a What Goes On Media production for Northern Power Women. The next episode arrives August the 3rd.